You are listening to Particular Pilgrims, stories from Reformed Baptist history with commentary. I am your host, Ron Miller, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church of Clarksville, Tennessee, and a longtime student and collector of Particular Baptist history. We are on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. I first introduced you to the Plymouth Baptist Church in the early episodes about the life of Abraham Cheer. He was pastor in the 1600s under persecution, who died imprisoned on Drake's Island in Plymouth Sound in 1668. The church continued to meet illegally, and with this came frequent arrests, and they, for about 25 years, were without a pastor. During this time, Robert Steed, later co-pastor with Hansard Knowles in London, regularly visited the church as part of what he called, quote, this large western circuit that included Dartmouth, Lew, Plymouth, and Cornwall, ministering the Word of God to those Baptist churches. Beginning in the late 1680s, they experienced a series of short-lived pastorates. At toleration, one of their number, named Isaac Pickus, registered a house in the town's pig market for their meeting house. About this time, they selected Samuel Buttle, one of their own, as pastor, and he ministered to them for about 10 years. For the next 35 years, the pattern of short pastorates, or none at all, continued. By 1737, the church was in a sad condition. Here's a portion of a letter written from the church to other area churches asking for advice. Quote, we are a poor, disjointed people, and therefore we have not had the Lord's Supper administered to us for several years, which is a great trouble to some of the small remnant which is left. But things were to further devolve until 1747, when they consisted of just eight members and 20 to 30 hearers. It was at this time that the risen Lord Jesus Christ intervened by the gift of a man, Philip Gibbs. Philip was born in Chivelston, a parish at the very southern end of Devon on the English Channel. He was presented for Anglican baptism on July 29, 1729, by his father Nicholas and his mother, whose name was Honor. Both are reported to have died of smallpox when Philip was just 18 months old. At some point, Philip was apprenticed to a tailor in the nearby market town of Kingsbridge. One day, around his 15th birthday, he was at work, and a woman member of the Baptist church arrived on horseback. She urged Philip to join her in hearing a minister of the establishment who had just come to town. His name was George Whitfield. Gibbs agreed and got up on the horse behind her. Now hear him tell the rest of the story. I went to hear him preach in a field, and being then little of stature, got up, not into a sycamore, but into an elm tree, as I well remember. His text was, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? The way of salvation was open to me, and in that single sermon I saw both my disease and remedy. 
I threw myself as a poor sinner upon the Son of God for mercy and salvation. So it was Philip Gibbs' testimony that the first time he heard the gospel truly presented, the Lord saved him. But George Whitfield himself wrote an account of these events as follows, quote, One young man who was then called is since a preacher. He was in a tree. I spoke to him to imitate Zacchaeus and to come down and receive the Lord Jesus. The word was backed with power. He heard, came down, believed, and now adorns the gospel. Here was yet another convert from the preaching of the evangelical revival who was to become a Baptist minister. Until this point, Philip had known nothing but the worship of the Church of England. Yet he now had contact with Baptists, and soon, again quoting his own words, By the scriptures I was convinced of believers' baptism, though I had never seen the ordinance administered by anyone. In 1745, aged 16, he was baptized by Mr. Curtis, the pastor of the Kingsbridge Baptists, and he joined that church. Just three months later, they asked the young man to exercise his gifts in preaching. He agreed and began to preach week after week. Presumably, this means he had previously received a good general and religious education. At some point in the next few years, the church set apart a day of prayer to consider Philip as a pastor. Their vote was unanimous. Mr. Curtis then told Philip, Brother Gibbs, the church calls you to exercise your gifts among us. Go and do what you can for Jesus Christ. This is where the Plymouth Baptist Church re-enters the story. They asked Mr. Curtis to preach for them, but he declined and sent Philip Gibbs to them, who was still 18 when he supplied the pulpit on April 23, 1748, for the first time. He preached successively for a month and then was invited to do so for a year. After deliberating, he agreed, since the word had met with so much success. But he had one condition. He had been used to preaching through the week in the surrounding villages and towns, and he wanted the liberty to continue this practice. This was readily agreed to, and before the year was up, the Plymouth Church ordained him. This took place September 20, 1749. This began a 51-year pastoral ministry by Philip Gibbs to the Baptist Church in Plymouth. Early in this time, Gibbs recommended that the dilapidated building in the pig market be torn down and replaced. The church agreed, and despite their small numbers, it was rebuilt, in part by Gibbs traveling around, including to London, and taking offerings from other Baptist churches to pay for the debt. Over time, the church grew, and some of those who came in from the west side of the city wanted to have a more convenient meeting place. So another body was established in what was called Devonport. That was on the western side of town, down by the shipping docks. Then Isaiah Burt, B-I-R-T, was called to co-pastor with Gibbs, 
and later Burt became the Devonport Church's pastor. Gibbs was used to help raise up and encourage a number of important pastors out of this congregation, as we'll see in our next episodes. Gibbs continued to preach widely in the far southwest of England and saw much fruit from his labors. He was active in the Western Association of Churches and is known to have written the circular letter for it in 1776. He is listed as one who subscribed to the publication of John Gill's Sermons and Tracts in two volumes in 1773. And in 1789, the church moved locations to a chapel on Howe Street that they eventually purchased. For most of his ministry, perhaps all of it, he did not take any compensation. I've not been able to discover how he made his living, but perhaps he continued in some aspect of the textile business that he had been trained in or apprenticed. But we know that he was quite successful at his calling because he left his wife Catherine a large legacy of hundreds, yes, even thousands of pounds in his will. And when he had a co-pastor who was supported by the church, he actually contributed to his pay. He took ill on November 27, 1801. And I'll give more of the details of that um, next time. But his case was described in the church book as follows. Having endured most excruciating pain with much patience and holy fortitude, he calmly resigned his soul into the hands of his dear Redeemer on the Lord's Day and died on the 30th. He was buried December 5, 1801, in the dissenting burial ground next to the church building. He had a few years earlier bought this land himself with his own money, and then he gifted it to the church. His long service was over, and his rest had begun. Oh, what good will be seen to have come from this quiet, long, faithful pastorate. Thank you for listening today. This is Ron the Baptist wishing you grace and peace.